2: Pod Save the People is brought to you by Vote Save America. It's 2024. Abortion, trans and gay rights, and whether our planet remains habitable for humans are all on the ballot. It's a lot, but Vote Save America's got you covered with a new initiative to help streamline your political giving for the year, the Anxiety Relief Program. Just donate what you can each month, and VSA will take care of distributing 100% of your dollars where they're needed most. So far, over 500 recurring donors have joined the program and trusted VSA to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. Head to votesaveamerica.com to sign up now. Paid for by Vote Save America. VotesaveAmerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or any candidate's committee. Hey, this is DeRay, and we're going to positive the People.
3: In this episode, it's me, DR, and Kaya, talking about some of the news that you don't know, talking about the election, and then talking about our next book pick from the Blackest Book Club. And then I sit down and I actually get to talk to the author of the book that I talk about this week. Dr. Uche Blackstock. Her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician, Reckons with Racism in Medicine. New York Times bestseller. It is stellar, stellar, stellar. Please get it. So good. I learned a ton. Let's go.
4: Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Dr. Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at D.R. Ballinger.
2: I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is Duray at D-R-A-Y on Twitter.
4: So we haven't been together since the Grammys happened. So we thought we'd do our own Pod Save the People style Grammys recap. I'm going to start with Tracy Chapman because as a Black queer woman on this podcast, obviously that's what was sending me. <laughs> <laughs> How incredible was that performance? I actually thought some of the performances... Um, Tracy Chapman, Joni Mitchell, I just thought, Stevie Wonder, I thought those were all so thoughtful and beautiful and intentional. There's some other stuff, you know, as I'm getting into my 40s now, I can take it or leave it. Um, But I found those performances (laughs) to be so, so wonderful. Um, Yeah, I just feel like there was a lot that happened. There was a lot around, you know, Jay-Z getting this honor, but then obviously, you know, sort of going into how it doesn't make sense why Beyonce hasn't won album of the year. Um, there was Taylor Swift snatching her Grammy out of Celine Dion's hands. I don't... Know. Wait, wait, you got to give us a chance to talk about these things. You can't just list all the things and then we
2: don't talk about them. So can we rewind boom, boom, it? Boom. Can we rewind it?
4: Yeah, in that order. So Let's tr- go for
2: it. Tracy Chapman, first of all, um, big up to Luke Combs for creating a moment for her. Um, She stood on that stage and not only did she sing that song, but there were like tears in her eyes because the people had such a tremendous response for her and to see an artist get their flowers in real life. You know, we haven't seen Tracy in, God knows how many years. I don't know what she been doing or whatever. Whoever is doing her skincare routine should um, that part get out here with a line? Well, you know what somebody I saw
4: I saw a meme that was like, when you don't when you don't fool with men, this is how good your (laughs) skin looks.
2: (laughs) is that? Um, It was just, it it actually, like it made me like tingly to see her so emotionally moved by this and to see Luke just kind of move over and let her do her thing was I thought very, I thought it was really nice.
3: It was so cool to see her face when, you know, because if you watched it, it was like her face was sort of in the shadow and then so people knew he was singing and people knew somebody was at the other Mike, and then when the light hits her face and then people start yelling again and you can see her smile like I was talking about. That was actually really cool. Um, You know, after the performance, it was something like the streams were up 800 percent. It became the number one song and number one music video on the iTunes charts. And uh, Tracy Chapman's debut album took the number one spot for albums. I remember 35 years ago, she won the Best New Artist at the 1989 yeah. Grammys and performed mm-hmm. the song then. And when Luke covered it, um, his his cover was so good that she won, um, she was the first Black songwriter to win at the Country Music Awards for songwriting because the song sort of resurfaced. And his cover was number two on the billboard hot 100 so it was Mm. cool to see them all together and she just looks so happy you're like come on Tracy you just look happy you know joy and Jay-Z said when I get nervous I tell the truth and he (laughs) said the truth is some of y'all don't belong in the categories and that actually might be true so I was I was with him on that and I you know it's like Beyonce has I, it is shocking to me that she has never won an album of the year. Also shocking that Katy Perry has no Grammys. I, that, I'm just throwing that in there just as a, like, what is the Grammys doing to people? D-
2: D- DeRay's friends. DeRay's on his friend campaign.
3: Just put it out there. Ride for okay, talent. So
2: here's so uh, here's what I will say. Um, like, I have mixed feelings about the whole Jay-Z thing, Right. On the one hand, like, I love that he stood up for his wife and he used his moment to, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, and he took his daughter with him. And so that is a very nice, like, protect and defend sort of thing for your family. Lovely. Um, I, I feel like, okay, one, I mean... Maybe she should have won a best album, maybe she shouldn't. Who knows? But stop begging. I feel like all we mm-hmm. keep like we're like Beyonce never won, Beyonce never won, Beyonce at some point, later it for the Grammys. Let that girl go. Look, you just you just did a tour that broke the economy, right? Who cares if you got you got more Grammys than anybody else? At some point, like I want us to stop being thirsty for other people's validation. Beyonce is unprecedented. Just keep it moving, honey. Don't don't go to the Grammys if it's, if you really are not messing with them like that. I, it just made me so I don't know it. F- it felt like. Creepy to me that he's like, and my wife has never went best the best album. Child, okay. I mean, maybe, sure, I guess. I don't know. I just, I want us to be like, thanks. Call me again when you recognize the real goat and keep it moving. Or I don't know something. This was too much for me. Here's what it is for me, Kai. Beyonce puts out this culture shifting music
4: every time. She does these concerts where... You know, we've seen she just eats fruits and berries all day long. Then she got to dance on the stage, you know, shaking and Not gyrating. Fruits and berries. And Taylor Swift, and you know, no disrespect to Taylor Swift, and I actually, you know, have respect for her and her artistry, and she is she's an incredible talent, incredibly talented person. But she can stand up there and sing, just stand she don't got to have costumes and changes and this and that. I think, so I think it's, for me, I look at like the labor a black woman puts into her craft and time and time again, that you do all that. And still someone who can, who does far less gets the award. I think that's my own weird warped problem with it. But I, to your point though, I don't, but it also doesn't make sense that we're waiting for these white institutions to like give us our flowers. That doesn't make sense. either.
2: you know, you know what it is. You know what it yeah. is. You know what it's gonna be. Have y'all lived in America for a little while? Like, why is anybody surprised? And there's a whole bunch of other people who I know. You know, I've seen it all on social media. Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder and Prince and I don't know whoever. All these other people who have not won best album, and so you know. Should she? Maybe, probably. Um, and you're right, Diara. She gets out there and she works. But I, my, w- the way I feel about Beyonce is she ain't working for them Grammys. She working for me That's and right. you, child. That's she right. is working for the people. Amen. And I'll take it. I'll take it. Now, can I tell you who did get up there and shake her booty costume and all, and did the thing? Was Fantasia's <laughs> Fantasia. little tribute to Tina How can Turner? I forget baby, forget about
4: Fantasia. <laughs> I was standing up, crying. Okay. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you this: Fantasia to be at Jazz Fest this year, and so I cannot. Mm. I might, I might get my seat the night before and just sit and just sleep. Mm-hmm. Make sure I don't miss mm-hmm. a piece of it. She's incredible.
2: Mm.
4: Absolutely
3: incredible. Mm-hmm. The best thing too about uh, that is that remember that was her original mm-hmm. audition mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. So it was oh, like, is oh, that right?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Ah. She
4: said, I'm an introduce. Some of y'all nice. don't know me, but I'm going to introduce myself. I said, I know that's right. Fantasia. <laughs> mm. All right. So moving from Grammys to measles, uh, Dre, you want to share something with the people?
3: Y'all, it blew my mind. Measles make making a comeback. You know, measles has been eradicated in the U.S. since the year 2000. A vaccine can prevent, it from, prevent you from getting it, but it's spreading in the Northeast. So as of uh, January of 2024, measles cases have been found in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and D.C. Wow. The anti-vaxxers are really setting us up. I am floored that we had legitimately eradicated it. It was gone. Gone. And what, and during, the vaccine what happens has eaten, with
4: measles? Like, you, you die, no? What happens with measles?
3: Yeah, you can die from measles. Um, it's one of the most transmissible diseases that we know of, which is sort of wild, especially dangerous for infants and young children. Um, And once it's contracted, the disease must run its course because there's no treatment. So if your body, if your immune system's not strong, um, you really can be screwed Mm. with cases of measles. Um, So you have to isolate. It's sort of like, you know, you have to isolate and get swabbed and all the other stuff. But we have not to deal with it because, you know, it got eradicated and. I, the symptoms are like fatigue, runny nose, coughing, fever, stuff like that, but it can lead to death. And the vaccine is 93% effective. We eradicated wow. it. And the anti-vaxxers are really not it. So I don't know why that was on my heart mm-hmm. this morning, but I saw it and I was like, come on.
4: You know what it reminds me of too, Dre? And I should, we should all find about this, but Catherine Flowers, who I adore and so inspired by. So Catherine Flowers is an environmentalist. She works primarily in Louds County, Alabama. I've talked about Catherine before, um, Oh, but yeah. Catherine, you know, her whole thing is Black folks living in waste in rural, rural South because they can't afford, you know, to keep their septic system maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. But Catherine said because so many folks um, uh, are living in waste that now tropical diseases that we didn't have for 100 years are now back in the United States. So that's another thing. We should probably try to dig into it. I can connect with Catherine and see like what, what is happening there. And that's what, that literally is what her work is about, trying to make sure that environmental inequity isn't, isn't continuing to happen throughout the South in particular. But that's what there sends me to. Like there, there are other places, too, where we are moving backwards, not necessarily because of people's bad behavior, but because of systemic oppression.
3: Hey, you're listening to Potsy of the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Potsy of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down.
4: Quick pod election coverage as we move closer, as the, the spring and summer come, and then the fall will be upon us. Um, so the what did
2: you have for <laughs> breakfast today, girl?
4: <laughs> we, so thankfully, well, not thankfully, we knew they were going to do well. So Biden and Kamala obviously won, uh, won Nevada. Now, there was another another candidate that actually had some trouble in Nevada. Um, (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Her name is Nikki Haley. I thought it was
3: a joke. (laughs) thought it was a joke. Her
4: name is Nikki Haley, and she didn't do well. What happened, DeRay, with Nikki Haley?
3: She lost to none of these candidates. And I thought (laughs) that none of these candidates (laughs) was a joke that somebody had put on Twitter as like a way to like, I don't know, poke fun at her, but literally people could choose, and I quote, none of these candidates and none of these candidates beat her. That is, I mean, it beat everybody, but that was both scary because the Trump people are really unhinged. But I didn't even know, I I would love for
2: more ballots to say none of these (laughs) candidates because that's how I feel a lot sure, But I, so when I first heard it, I was like, damn, damn, the people want nobody instead of you, Nick. <laughs> and then because that that is like that's something else. Um, but then when I read when I read further, the Trump people basically orchestrated all of their supporters to vote. None of these candidates in order to vote in the next primary. So this primary was. Of no consequence. It didn't. Um, it didn't grant any delegates and whatnot. And it was very clear, apparently, that Trump would have was going to take the whole entire primary, win all of the delegates. And so Nikki Haley didn't concentrate any efforts in in Nevada. And the Trump people coordinated the effort to get because <laughs> they literally did not want her to have a win anywhere. And one, I think, it just goes to like you know, this is a don't hate the player, hate the game kind of thing. Like they coordinated and they handed her a rounding defeat, which I think is hilarious. Um, it also, it also made me think like, dang, Nikki, if I'm in Nevada and I'm thinking about voting for you, like, you're like, yeah, it wasn't worth it. Uh So I don't know what message that sends to Nevadans, Um, but mm, I'm with you, DeRay, if, None of these candidates was on the ballot. None of these candidates might win many more (laughs) elections. (laughs) None of these, whoever even thought to put that as a phrase
3: winner. Uh,
4: And I think the Uh, other thing um, that I want us to track and that I've been reading a great deal around too, is just um, the impact of um, the impact of Israel and Gaza on Arab, Arab Americans and, and, you know, you know, here at home and just all of the organizing that's being done now to stop this war. I don't know. See Muslims, and Palestinians as human beings. I don't know. Name, name, name the thing. But evidently there was a meeting that was supposed to happen with Kamala Harris and this week, um, that's, has been postponed. There's just a lot of the a lot of what I saw in the last few days with the news cycle, a lot of it was um, how how this administration is going to engage with um, the Muslim and the Arab American community. So I, I haven't seen anything that is, an, is a next step from either side necessarily. But I think the, fa- the fact that it is making national news and regularly in the news cycle, I think, is a good thing Um particularly when we think about places, you know, where there are huge constituency, like Michigan, for example. So it, it will be interesting to see how the, how both the administration and the campaign engage with these communities. Um, I, I don't think that engagement up this far has been successful. Which makes sense, but um, I think I think it's the first time that I'm seeing in all the years that I've done Politics and, and worked on presidential campaigns, and I'm seeing this community have this type of um, this type of this type of visibility. Quite frankly, so I'm super interested and, and excited actually to see what comes from the fact that they have been getting political coverage.
2: Well, it's not just the Muslims and Arabs; it is also young people That's right. That's right, who are not and and young people are critical to That's right. um to this election cycle and young people are deeply deeply dismayed at how the administration is handling um the situation in the middle east and i don't know if you saw there was an article in um I, don't know. I can't remember if it was the Times or the Post last week or so saying a thousand black pastors yes. have gotten together and written a letter or have been lobbying, have met with the White House to push the administration to push for a ceasefire. Now, they're also calling for the release of hostages and mm-hmm. for, you know, the, the end of the occupation of of the West Bank and a bunch of other things. But they have sort of raised their hand because their parishioners are morally outraged at the um, at what's happening to Palestinians. And so these pastors have gotten together on behalf of their congregants to say, this is a problem. And, you know, yeah. young people, black people, black people, the most stalwart group that the Dems That's have, cool. right? Muslims and Arabs, like there are all of these groups groups that are going to have to figure out what this means to them on election Mm -hmm. day. And, uh, that's not, that's not good. (laughs) It's not good. It's
3: also like, who are y'all listening to? Because this is one of those things where like, it's not the fr it's not the fringe saying, Hey, this doesn't make sense. It is people who, have never checked into global politics in their life. Who are like, okay, you can't wipe the country off the face of the earth. Like that is, and and I don't know. You know, I I continue to say like I I don't know Corinne personally, but I lost <laughs> all respect for her when I saw her.
2: <laughs> you know, because is about the fifth time that you have raised this. <laughs> I am,
3: I'm still <laughs> warned She stood up there and said those things about the. I would rather her just be like no comment, because then I could just be like, well, she ain't say nothing. But her sort of making like gaslighting for, us for to people, be like. For
2: people who have not heard this before, why don't you tell the people what Corinne said? Let me go look up the exact quotes because I want people to get the facts because they were crazy.
3: I'm shocked at the administration on this actually. you They need you. Go back in there. Go help those.
2: Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. <laughs>
3: The, who's the um, Secretary of State? I don't know, of
4: Blink. You know what, though? <laughs> Hillary did, and I shoot, I need to go back and watch it. I think we all maybe should. But Hillary just did an interview, a long interview with Alex Wagner, and I'm very curious to see both what what H said, but also how she, whether or not she told the line for the administration. So I want to go back and, and encourage everybody else to go back in. Huh? Ooh, Check that out.
2: Ooh, wow. There's a... That's an accusation? Huh.
4: No, it's not an accusation. I just want to I mean, I'm sure she did it. You know, thoughtfully, but a way of, you know, she's not going to not have her voice in it. But I think she's some but she's someone that that I go to and not that she's been right on everything, but when it comes to like understanding from a policy perspective, um and for someone who actually like has worked in these regions and I don't know reads books, I think it's helpful um to get to get a, a perspective that is it, that can be instructive. Um, so I don't, it's a note for myself that I'm going to go, go back and, and listen to that, that interview. And then cry afterwards. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Should we transition into Blackest Book Club, y'all? We still Black. We still, book we still read books. Encourage another to black. read books by the Black peoples for mm-hmm. the Black peoples.
3: The question for this week is what book in the last year has sparked your spirit?
4: Oh, what book in the last year sparked your spirit? Well, I'm happy to go first. That helps. This year has been a particularly tough year for me. Um, I don't know if I've shared it with, with our audience, but I lost my dad in September. Maybe I have. And so I think the world was already a challenging place to me, but I think leaving, losing my center made it even more challenging. And so one of the human beings that I have leaned on, and I am so blessed that this human being is also a thinker, a writer, a poet, and a lover, Cleo Wade, wrote a book called Remember Love. And, and the book really is to help you through challenging times, right? It's, it's, I've, I've been reading it sort of and going back to it, both to help me with my grief but also just to remember that I am a human being that is present and needs to be distinct and needs to be cared for before I go out into this world and have to deal with all the things and have all the things come at me. Um, And so I think it's something that I encourage all of you to read because it is so, it just just takes you back to you. And um, one of my favorite lines in it um is I'm not a busybody I'm a body cuz I think sometimes I'd be a busybody <laughs> so <laughs> so it is and there's so many beautiful poems and anecdotes and Cleo's own stories in the book that really help to just center you and be meditative in a way around things that you're going through and how to process things that you're going through um difficulties with family, difficulties with friendship, difficulties with understanding, you know, why the world seems like such a dark place. Um, and so, yeah, I encourage all of you to read it and, and, and get it because it's about remembering love, the love for yourself, the love for community, um, to just to give you a little bit of a breath um, in a sanctuary, given the world that we're living in. So that's mine.
2: Um, I'll go next. So, and I, I just, you, will, I, I can't even believe that I forgot this, but um, I'll tell you what I remembered in a minute. Um, so the book that has sparked my spirit in the last year is called Black Futures. And the thing that I forgot is that our own Diara Ballinger is one of the contributors to this amazing book. Um, So, Diara, I'm going to let you tell the people about your part in it in a minute. But um, here's what I love about this book. And it's so interesting because Miles picked, who's not with us today, picked this as the book that sparked his spirit. Um, But I love this book. So it is a series of Essays and photos and poems and artist statements and dreams and uh, all kinds of things. Um, It's an anthology where a zillion different people have contributed to this. um, And it is all about blackness. It's about joy and justice and power and love and and Afrofuturism and all of this. And you know, I love being Black. I really do. And I love seeing us in all of our different dimensions. I love being able to pick up this book at any point And just literally, like, you don't even, you don't read it in order. You just pick something and you open it up. You see a thing and you're like, that sounds interesting. And it takes you about five minutes to read it. And there's something inspirational. There's something joyful. There's something resilient. There's something futuristic that you had not been thinking about that just puts a pep in your blackest step. And so I love this book. I do. I really do. I I love this book. It does. It does. I think uh, if you don't have it, go get it. Um, It's by Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. And um, these sisters, on the back it says, it's an archive of collective memory an exuberant testimony, a luminous map to navigate an opaque and disorienting present, an infinite geography of possible futures. Mm. I just love it. Um, And so get Black... Get Black Futures if you want a little spark in your life, a little pep in Diara, your black step. Yes, Diara, tell us about your oh, piece. It
4: was, of course, about the Black political future, and I talked a lot about um, it's it's when it's it's when Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum were running for for governor. So it was about those those struggles, but also sort of just a testimony why we need more black political leaders and why we need to be cultivating and supporting more black political leaders. And so I think even as we, you know, fast forward, I mean, I, I think I wrote that in like 2000 and like 17 or 18 or something like that. Um, you know, are, are we, where, where are we with black political leadership and what does that look like? Um, and, you know, I am, I just I think Stacey Abrams is such an incredible human being, can, candidate, and just so brilliant in so many ways. And so I think my disorientation around the fact that Hillary Clinton didn't become president and Stacey Abrams didn't become governor of Georgia, um, obviously I understand the rea- realities of that. But just from a very humanist perspective, it just still blows my mind. So my piece is really just about Um, the fact that we have these incredible individuals, um, and how we need, we need to lift them up and also, you know, cultivate, cultivate and nurture, nurture more. So, I don't know. Y'all, I need to get myself back into politics because this is getting dark.
2: Um, somebody told me that they would run your campaign if you got back (laughs) into politics. (laughs) I know I'm somebody, I know a guy,
3: I know a guy. <laughs> I'm door knocking all the campaigns.
2: <laughs>
3: so my book is an author that we interviewed on the pod, but I cannot love it enough. Uche Blackstock, Dr. Uche Blackstock made the New York Times bestseller list with her book, Legacy. And the thing that it sparked my spirit was like, I, you know, so many times we think about these problems as like insurmountable or they feel bigger than people. I mean, it's what made me an organizer because I'm like- Community is bigger than our biggest problems. I believe that. And then I read this book. And the thing that stuck with me that I will just never forget is how there used to be seven-ish medical schools for Black people. And a report came out that compared every medical school to Johns Hopkins a long time ago a standard that was impossible for the vast majority of schools to meet, not because of academic excellence, but because of resources, not that the other schools were actually doing anything wrong or not teaching people well, but they purposefully made Johns Hopkins in my hometown of Baltimore, the bar and used that as a justification to close five of the seven medical schools. Hmm. And she writes about, what a Black future would have looked like if we were producing Black doctors at the rate that we could have if the only two medical schools left weren't Howard and Mahari. And, you know, I knew that there were not a lot of Black medical schools, but I was like, oh, they must not have had the money. And uh, like, I don't know. I was like, it was, I was sort of rationalizing. And I'm like, no, there were seven of them. We were pumping Black doctors out. And you've already seen the stats on, you know, black doctors sir, black community. We were pumping them out and there was a coordinated effort to close the schools. That is just, I'll never forget that. And when people say it always comes back to race, I think it was called the Fletcher Report. When people say everything comes back to race, y'all, they ain't lying. But this like really just let, if I, I mean, I my work every day, I, I see crazy stuff, but This one was one where I was like, oh, we, you know, when people talk about Reconstruction and and all this stuff, it's like we actually had a blueprint for doing this right by Black people. We did. And people worked intentionally to undo it. And y'all get that book.
2: She did a Mm -hmm. piece in the Washington Post, an opinion piece. And, um, And what was striking to me about that, of course, all of the statistics around healthcare care and racial disparities and stuff but she also talked about her mom her mom was a doctor in brooklyn at king's county hospital and how she and her twin sister grew up watching this woman like take holistic care of her patients providing a level of quality and care for black people that you know is not something that we are accustomed to and you know, representation matters, seeing black doctors. It's not just about having black doctors so that they provide us with a different level of care, but, you know, our children have to see it in order to be it. And I was just so struck by how, you know, and her mama was a black mama hustling like everybody else, right. Raising kids, working, (laughs) studying, doing all the things, keeping a family together and all of that stuff. Um, and it reminded me of how amazing Black women are and how our children need to see this um, mm-hmm. to know, to to be great. Um, and so I'm excited about the interview that you did, DeRay, Um, and excited to hear more from her. She's a fresh voice. I think she's using her powers in really interesting ways. Um I know. And now, obsessed, um, and she was on Pal covering
4: last night on MSNBC. And she was on, and I was like, Did you make her our friend, pal?
2: (laughs) I know, I know because she lives in New York.
4: Thank you for your work, honestly. Really, thank you for your work, Dr. Uche.
2: So Again, I already told y'all this is my favorite time of the year, Blackest Book Club. Thank you again for, for these inspiring books. My like to-read pile is just getting taller and taller. Um, and we'll be back next week where we will be discussing Black authors that we would love to interview on the podcast um, and the books that we'd like to discuss. So... Um, Make sure that you listen to the podcast. Make sure that you read the books. Make sure that you support black authors. Um and tune in next week for the next edition of the Blackest Book Club.
3: Don't go anywhere. More of The people's coming. We welcome physician thought leader, Dr. Uche Blackstock, to talk about her new book, Legacy, a Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Recently, we covered a story on Black Americans screening out at clinical trials for a new Alzheimer's drug. And now we talk to an expert. There's so many things with regard to race in medicine that we've talked about on the podcast, but she brings more context to the progress made the work that it lies ahead, and our own personal story and journey. I learned a ton in this interview, stuff that still sticks with me. This was my book of the week. Here we go. Dr. Blackstock, it is an honor to have you on the podcast today.
5: Thank you so much for having me. I am such a fan of you and the podcast, and I'm ready to have some some interesting conversation with you.
3: So, you know, I, I have a lot of questions. Now, let me tell you, you did not write a history book, but I learned so much about stuff that I just didn't even know I didn't know. Um, so I'm going to get to that. But let's start with your mom. In so many ways, the book is a love letter to your mother uh, and your father too. You know, he's he's in the book. Um, but I learned so much about your mom and, um, and her life and what it meant to you and how it inspired you to be a doctor and also, you know, how the healthcare system could have treated her better. Yeah. Can you talk about, um, why you shaped the book's narrative around your mother?
5: Well, one, I know you want to make me cry. So, um, (laughs) so, so no, but really, this this book is really to, one, give my mother a voice because I felt like in the life that she led as a little Black girl from impoverished Brooklyn, born to single mom, she had five siblings, they were raised on public assistance, no one really thought that she'd be able to do all the things that she did. No one thought that she'd be the first in her family to go to college and then go on to medical school, and Harvard met at that, um, you know, so all of, there were so many barriers, poverty, racism. Um, in her way but she was just a very determined little girl with a lot of work ethic and a lot of luck as well as we as we also know and she cared very very deeply a lot about a lot of the issues that we are still seeing today you know in in you know 2023 20, 2024 20, a lot of the same issues actually are even worse in terms of health equity racial health inequities are worse now than they were when she was growing up and when she was in training. So that's why I thought it was just so important. And just other, also, she's a huge influence on me. I We call her the original Dr. Blackstock because my twin sister and I became physicians because <laughs> of her. I thought growing up that all physicians were Black women, because that's all I was exposed to growing up. My mother would take us to local Black Brooklyn physician meetings, and I would see other Black doctors who were in the community, like deeply embedded, doing the work, connecting with patients, diabetes screenings, high blood pressure screenings, making sure people were able to take care of themselves or had the resources to do so, connecting them. So... That's the environment that I grew up in. So I wanted people to understand that my mother, while she was unique, there were many other people like her that cared very deeply about the people in our community because we were, we were, and we are worthy.
3: Boom. Now I got to get my highlights all together in the book so I can know where to start. But, uh, let's start with the Flexner report. Had never heard of it. Didn't, it it like shed so much light on. I was like, oh, I get how we're here today. But can you can you help us understand why that was an important report to include in the story you're telling?
5: Yes. I thought the Flexner report was so important to include because what I realized is I was never taught about the Flexner report in medical school or in my training. I learned about it as a practicing physician. So here I am trying to figure out why black folks, we're only 5% of all physicians, as if like there's internalizing that, as if there's something wrong with us. But of course, like everything else, it's the system working as designed And that 1910 Flexner report was the report that essentially was commissioned by the American Medical Association, the largest and whitest and oldest organization of white physicians and Carnegie Mellon University to basically assess the standards of all 155 U.S. medical schools and Canadian medical schools. They held all those schools against the standard of Johns Hopkins Medical School, but by doing so you know, they penalized historically black colleges and universities and those medical schools associated with them. As a result of that, that report, five out of seven of the black medical schools were forced to close around the turn of the century. There's a report that came out a few years ago that said that if those medical schools had been able to remain open they would have trained between 25 and 35,000 physicians. And we know those are probably most likely Black physicians. But if you can imagine the impact that those physicians would have had in our communities, it would have been exponential. One, because we also are more likely to go back to our communities and work in our communities. You know, of course, there are some probably Black physicians out there that are just like, I want to just, you know, make that money. But so many of us are there because of what we saw was not right in our communities. And we actually want to be of service in some way.
3: Yeah. I, you know, and you know, in the, you know, in the book, Howard and Mahari because is it, is it Mahari or Meharry? Yeah,
5: Mahari.
3: Meharry. Those are the only two Black medicals that I ever heard of. Like, literally, I just didn't even know that there were any that existed before know. those two. And when I read this in the book, I'm like, you know what? When we say it always comes back to race, it, we, it, nobody's it, being dramatic. If anything, we're underselling that point.
5: Listen, we are we are absolutely underselling it because I assure you probably 99 percent of all physicians, black, white or whatever, whatever their racial demographic is, they don't know about that background. The medical schools don't know about that background the patients coming to seek their care, don't get to know about that background. And I think even as regular black folks, we need to know that history because we need to know what we're up against. We need to know that when that SCOTUS decision came out a few months ago on race conscious um, admissions in higher education, that that's going to impact the number of black health professionals we see generations to come, right? Cause that's what this Flexner report did too.
3: Now, um, I want to talk about gynecology, which you also talk about in the book. But before we get there, you know, one of the things that was really interesting about your father's story, and as you know, my work is about the police and prisons and jails, is that there was an instance of police violence that radicalized him. And, you know, the police on average killed three people a day. Um, And sometimes I forget how close the trauma of policing is to so many people's stories. And when I read it in your father's story and the whole moment about his pan-Africanism and y'all names, and I'm like, I love black people. Um, yeah, I was, I wanted to talk to you about it. Did he ever talk to y'all about that part of his life and the police violence and the and the protests? And
5: Yeah, I think for him, and you know, I, I write about this, this idea of being black is very different in the United States versus growing up in a black country. So hmm. it wasn't until coming to the US at 17 and witnessing witnessing you know racism interpersonal structural racism with his own eyes that he actually felt moved to do something or just to, to be impacted by racism and so yeah he talks about you know that the the you know young person a teenager who was killed by police and then there were riots in New York City as a result of that really being a catalyzing moment from him and thinking about his own black identity. And as you alluded to that kind of like, (laughs) had a domino effect in terms of his engagement with the East, which is a Pan-African organization that was based in Brooklyn in the sixties and seventies, but with also how he named Oni and me and making sure that we were very, very connected as much as we could to our African ancestry. And that we had a very strong sense of who we were as black people in this country.
3: Oh. Um, and talk about your learning about the history of gynecology.
5: Yes. But can I also just say something, one thing that yeah. there was something else that I had read, written about in terms of policing, and I, I didn't go into it as much. And of course, when you write a book, you always have regrets. But this idea that in our communities where there's increased policing and increased interactions, also known as police brutality with residents, that residents actually fear seeking medical attention. They develop a distrust of medical institutions. And so there are a tremendous amount of unmet needs in our community because of that. And that also has a domino effect.
3: Yeah. yeah. It all, it, I, you, the, the book reminded me, I'm like, when we say it's all about race, people think we're being dramatic. And I'm like, if anything, we, the drama is not high enough.
5: I know. And and that's why for this book, I want it to be affirming for black folks reading it and educational in its own way. And for everyone else, I want them to be like, whoa, okay, wh- what do I need to do? Um, but in terms of you're asking about the history of gynecology and the really depra- depraved and horrific history of gynecology in this country and how it was essentially discovered and founded on the bodies of enslaved Black women, you know, it's again a history that we didn't really know about widely or publicly up until like maybe 2017, 2018. So, J. Marion Sims was, you know, he, he's called the father of, of modern gynecology. He's the person who developed what's called the speculum that's you basically use at almost every gynecology appointment today. It's usually plastic or metal. Um, but he also made other discoveries, again, uh, uh, horrific discoveries. Um, on the bodies of enslaved Black women, you know, performing these horrific surgeries that were used to find um, essentially a cure for what's called a vesico-vaginal fistula. It's basically what happens during childbirth. It, essentially, connections are formed between the the bladder and the vagina, so that after giving childbirth, people end up urinating out of their vagina. So it's actually very humiliating for people, and you know, they were trying to find a way of curing this because there was a financial incentive, obviously, because you wanted these enslaved black women to continue birthing these babies because they had, you know, monetary worth and they wanted to do it for white women because they wanted to make sure that, you know, they could lead a decent life. But that history um, is a history that we were never taught Uh, and hasn't really been out there until a few years ago, there was a statue of J. Marion Sims across from the New York Academy of Medicine for decades um, that was taken down um, thanks to the um, advocacy of of, uh, Harriet Washington and and other uh, Black authors. But again, we need to know the history if we are going to address what's happening today in terms of racial health inequities, in terms of the Black maternal health crisis.
3: Now, this is the last history question I'll ask, because these are all the things that blew my mind, was the, um, and I forgot his name and I could find it, but you know it, is the the guy who said that we have less lung capacity.
5: rate. And, but also thinking about how that became so ingrained in medicine, essentially saying that we are biologically different from white people. And as a result, We have different um, capacity for holding air in our lung, different lung capacity. But as a result of that, or or, or kind of even suggesting that we are like superhuman, but as a result of that, (laughs) it became um, normalized within medicine to have different standards of what is considered normal for black patients' lung capacity and white patients'. And that still exists in hospitals today. It's called a race correction factor. It's the same for kidney function. Kidney function also, um, it's often um, underestimated in black patients. And because of that, we we often will get passed over for kidney transplants, or we won't get um, kidney uh, care, specialty kidney care done or initiated earlier. So we end up dying. So again, this idea that we are biologically different. I think also when you talk about Anarcha, Betsy, those women that were operated on by um, J. Marion Sims, he was able to do that because of dehumanization of this idea of not seeing Black people as actual human beings. And so we, we see that now, and, you know, obviously we still see that now in how we're treated in our communities, but dehumanization is deeply rooted historically in the practice of medicine in this country. And that's why today there's so many of us, even me as a Black physician, I can go to the doctor and feel like I'm being ignored and being dismissed.
3: And you write about that in the book, your own experiences um, being a medical professional and still having people questioning you when you go to the doctors. I, you know, the ER medicine is so interesting to me because I'm one of those people who like only really know it because comp- I watched the TV shows. So Grays and ER and all those shows. Um, what is it like in real life for you? And, and you talk about this a little bit in the book, the, the experiences that either radicalized you or completely just shifted the way that you understood it, not academic experiences, but like being in the hospital with people in need and you are the face of the help of like the yes. support of the of the cure.
5: Yeah, I mean, it definitely depended on what the envi- what environment I was in. When I was in training, I was in a predominantly Black patient environment. Um, probably about 30% of the health professionals were also Black. But it was in that environment at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, which is a chronically underfunded hospital, that I was actually able to see or able to connect the dots of why my communities were so unhealthy that there was nothing individually wrong with us, that there was something very much wrong with the with the structure of the communities that we lived in, like that people because of inadequate housing, because they lived in food deserts, um, because they lived in jobs where they didn't have paid family leave or health insurance, they weren't able to care for themselves. So I was able to connect the dots and I talk about this patient I had who had sickle cell disease. He's actually like a compilation of several patients that I had, but sickle cell disease is traditionally taught as a this is a black disease. we we e- were even tested in medical school, what are risk factors for sickle cell disease? Black is one of them. Black is not a risk factor. <laughs> like Black is a is a social construct. Yes, geographical ancestry tied to certain parts of the world can put you at risk for sickle cell disease. But because it's been racialized as a black disease, it's been chronically underfunded there are one or two treatments for sickle cell disease. Actually, one just another one just came out within the last month involving gene editing, but there are hundreds for cystic fibrosis. There are hundreds for hemophilia, which are other inherited diseases that impact uh, mostly white people. But because sickle cell is a black disease, we see patients with sickle cell disease in the ER so often. And I got hmm. to see firsthand because the system outside was so dysfunctional, they had to come to the ER when they were in pain, when they were having pain crises or complications of sickle cell disease. And because of that, they get tagged with, oh, this person is drug seeking. This person is looking for a pain medications. So that's the only reason why they are here. I had supervising doctors tell me as a resident, hey, make sure you check their blood work and that they actually do have sickle cell because I don't believe them. But it became very stigmatizing because they look sickle cell patients look like us. So you're like, right. why, why are you being like this? Why are you treating patients this way? Why are you not adequately treating this patient's pain. And it felt like, oh, because this patient is black, you don't even see the pain that they're in, or you don't even think that they deserve dignified care. And this happens everywhere, but I didn't really get to see it until I was in my residency. And that really stuck with me. And because of that, people with sickle cell disease, they end up living very short lives. They die in their late forties or early fifties. And I think, you know, and I think about that, I'm like, that's racism. That's what racism does.
3: That is, yeah. They, you know, for all of us, there's like a thing that radicalized us. And um, and reading your story about, um his, was his name? Jordan? Did I make that up? Yes.
5: No, yeah, yeah. That was that, that's okay, it. That's it. Yes, Jordan. Um, mm-hmm.
3: um, really, it really stuck with me. Now, when we think about the solutions, right? Like people, I've read a lot about the maternal mortality um issue and and as you know in the book if if people are questioning Serena Williams and Lord knows they'll question anybody um w- what is the structural fix yeah. and can people who aren't doctors do anything or is it support the doctors
5: yes i mean i think just like you already alluded to we know racism is embedded into every single social institution, right? It's embedded in the the criminal legal system, educational system. And I think what I wanted to make sure people understood is that like in New York City, the same communities that have the highest maternal mortality rates or the highest rates of chronic diseases like asthma, um, those are the same neighborhoods that were redlined in the 1930s or that have been disinvested in or chronically disinvested in because of discriminatory practices and so i want people to understand that health is not just about individuals making the right choices for themselves that's like literally 10 percent of what health is The, the other piece of health that everyone needs to understand is that yes it depends on how safe your community is right can you go out and take a walk do you have green space in your community um What's the educational quality like? Right? Are you able to get a decent quality education? Are you able to find gainful employment? You know, so so it's like we have to like look at all of those what we call the social determinants of health and how racism impacts them to think about solutions. So that's why I always say it's not just about making sure we educate health professionals to see Black people as human beings. That is only one piece of it. (laughs) What happens in the hospitals is only one piece of that, and I do think there need to be processes and procedures in place to ensure that we are getting the best quality care, that discriminatory care is not happening to us because that often happens. But also what is life like outside? We know that birthing people are more likely to have preterm deliveries just also because of the stress of dealing with everyday racism. So I need people like white folks on an individual level, um, non-black people of color on an individual level to think about, again, their own internal biases, educating their family and friends, thinking about how it show, racism is showing up in their workplaces, thinking about these choice points, these equity choice points that we make all the time in whatever role we're in about, oh, are you gonna promote the same person you've already promoted? Or are you gonna go with um, someone who doesn't quite fit, right? Um, or what vendor are you going to use in the role that you have at your job? So I always think about like, you know, what are these choices that we've been making that or that people in power have been making that get repeated all over and over again? So again, policy around health, policy around education, around mass incarceration, all of it is connected and is important to really do, it, even if it's advocacy on a community a local level in your community on these issues because of all of it is connected to how healthy we are.
3: This is um, such a random question, but since I have you, I was like, let me ask. Because you and your sister both are doctors, do you ever get to doctor together? Like, do you get to like do doctor things together? I think about my sister, me and my sister, both were middle school math teachers. Um, and she's a principal now. And I worked inside of the the central office and it, I'll never forget the moments where I used to call her and be like, "Teray, I don't know how to, I'm like, you know, I need to teach this and can you help me figure out the best way to do it? Do you ever get to have doctor moments with your yes, sister?
5: We, we do. I mean, she does primary care and, um, focuses on HIV on black women with HIV and I do emergency medicine so sometimes like she'll be like girl someone came in and xyz happened and I didn't even know how to deal with it so I feel like I can I can help her and and vice versa I'll ask her wait tell me again mammograms how often and when like preventive care so um I definitely think we see each other as a resource and we're grateful.
3: I love that. That must be so, it's like, you know, sibling (laughs) stuff is so fun sometimes Or you're like, okay, I wanted to know too, you know, there's a lot in the book. What was the most surprising thing to you when you were writing it? Was it the writing about... Uncovering your mom's story, or sort of writing it yeah. this way, were there pieces about the the history of medicine that were the most surprising pieces? Like, what was the what was the most unearthed, or like the hardest, or the most complicated that that came up?
5: So I think the, I, no, no, the hardest, but I don't not hardest in a, in a negative way, but I think obviously telling my family's story and and talking about my mother and literally like reflecting on how hard her life was and the fact that she died from leukemia when we were only, when she was 47, we were only 19 years old. I felt like it really hit me that she was robbed because also I'm now 47 or 47 years old. So like, you know, I'm like, wow, there was so much more of my mother's life that she could have lived. And I feel like it's really my sister and my responsibility to make sure that We are doing the work so that her legacy continues.
3: And what is your advice to young people who want to go into medicine or are people sort of looking for like an encouraging word about the medical profession?
5: Yeah, so what I will say is that there are so many different ways we can help our community. I think that sometimes like people think being a physician in healthcare is the only way. There are a lot of really wonderful roles within healthcare. There is, you know, not only physicians, but but medical assistants, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, um, occupational therapists, physical therapists, like there are so many ways that we can contribute to the health of our community. We can even go to a public health school. All that to say is that there is such a need to have us there in our communities, working with our folks. Like I can't even say how important that is. And because of gatekeeping and policies like the ones we've talked about, you know, they don't allow us in, but you know, just know that there are people like me, um, folks like my sister that are out there advocating for them and our presence is so, so incredibly important to our patients.
3: Here is two questions that we ask everybody. The first is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you?
5: Okay, so my father always told me, starting from when I was very young, that, you know, simple, but be nice to people. He said, you you never know who you're interacting with, and it really doesn't matter who they are or what their role is. It's just that you always want to put your best foot forward, and I feel like that's what I've always done.
3: Um, Boom. And then the second is, what do you say to people whose hope is challenged in moments like this, people who feel like they've done all the things, right? They read your book, they read my book, they emailed, they testified, they stood in the street, like they did everything and the world didn't change in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people?
5: Well, when I say I see you, I, I feel you, I have been there at times. Um, I think what I've recognized about my own journey, and this is a journey that I had not expected, um, you know, I have my own consulting firm now, I, I do medical contributor work. Now I'm an author. These are things I never thought I would do ever just because I didn't think these opportunities were available to me. But what I would say is, is that people see you, the people who need to see you, they see you, the people who need to be inspired by you, they're inspired by you. And the fact is, is that even though we may not be able to see perceptible change within our short time or within a lifetime that we just have to keep going because like our ancestors kept going (laughs) we have to keep going because we actually have no other choice but to keep going but also to take care of ourselves and rest recover recuperate in the process as well
3: and do you have a um do you have a community of, of black doctors like your mom did
5: I do. I have like all my girls from medical school and um I have my friends from residency and folks that I worked with. So, I definitely have a group of people that I know I can always go to like within medicine who who get me and understand what it's like to be a black health professional, a black physician um in medicine in this country
3: what do you want to do next in your, in your own? I'm so interested in, I feel like I know so much about your mother and, and your dad. And, um, and I'm interested in like what you, what's your, you wrote a book and the book yes. is great. I
5: Thank you. I'd like to, um, I think, Ultimately, policy is what's going to have the biggest impact on the health of our communities, whether it's local, state, or federal. And so I would love to have more influence with policymakers who are focusing on health equity, um, just to make those connections, um, to be an advocate, to, to, to make sure that we're impacting our communities on a larger level and not just an individual level. So as a physician, that's the individual impact, the, you know, one-on-one, but now I feel like such a need to really work on policy that impacts communities and not just individuals.
3: And where do people go to stay in touch with you? Is it, is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? Is it Instagram? How do people stay in touch? Yeah.
5: So I am on Twitter at Uche, U-C-H-E underscore Blackstock. I'm also on Instagram at Uche Blackstock MD. And then I'm also on LinkedIn at Uche Blackstock. So you can find me in all those, all those social media channels.
3: Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. I'm
5: so honored. I had so much fun. Thank you for having me.
3: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Posse of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, DR Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.